Welcome back to Montana Voice. I'm Steve Saroff, and I'm reading from the novel The Ether and the Lie, where we last left Enzi, he was driving back to Missoula from Seattle, where he had realized that Dave Cheat's death was not accidental, and that it had been orchestrated by Tsai, and maybe even with some help from SLAM's CEO. And Enzi has decided that he no longer wants to be part of hacking the financial network. This episode of The Ether and the Lie is called Empty Graves. When I checked my voicemail in the morning, I skipped through messages, erasing each after hearing the first few words. But there was one from the thin detective that I listened to carefully. His message said that he saw that I had visited with Kaori in jail and that he wanted to meet with me again. He left a phone number. I thought about ignoring him, but I wanted to know more about anything regarding Kaori. So, instead of returning his call, I drove downtown in the Subaru with the day pack of cash covered by a blanket. I went to the police desk in the city hall. I asked to see Thin, who then came out of the reception desk to meet me. Didn't expect to see you, he said, and then he motioned me to follow. I thought he was leading me to go into one of those interview rooms they show in the cop shows, those rooms with nothing on the walls except a two-way mirror and a video camera. But instead, I followed him through a door with his name on it and into his office. Finn sat down behind a wooden desk. Attached to one end of the desk was an old paper dispensing contraption, which looked like it had come out of an antique mall after having been on the counter of some butcher shop. Instead of wide butcher wrap, the contraption held a roll of bright white typing paper. Tacked on the walls of his office were the continuous paper scrolls that must have come from the dispenser on his desk. Some were short, a foot or two long, but others wrapped completely around the office's four walls. Drawn carefully on the scrolls were parallel colored lines, which varied in width from fine to thick. Above and below all the lines were carefully written notes. Thin watched me, then he waved his hand and said, Take a look. The scrolls were timelines, the sort of long charts that history teachers unfold and tack on the walls of classrooms. Most of Thin's scrolls had multiple colored lines. Some lines were a few inches long. Others ran the entire length of the scrolls. Lines stopped, they crossed each other, or they moved apart. Most lines, though, ended abruptly. I glanced at Thin, and he said, 
Look around as much as you want. And then he leaned back in his chair and continued. But what you want to see is not up there. It's here. And he tapped at the scroll of paper that was currently stretching out across his desk. The scroll in front of Thin reached about midpoint on the long desk. Kaori's name was at the start of a fine red line that began at the beginning of the length of paper and then grew wider. After her name, the first annotation read, Tokyo, with a date. Near that date was another orange line labeled Boyfriend, Jim, which started above Kaori's. At a label that read Missoula, Jim's line moved onto Kaori's line. Then, a few inches past that convergence, a green line labeled Elizabeth began. Elizabeth's line curved down from the top of the paper, crossed into Jim's and Kaori's line, and caused Kaori's to bend abruptly downward. My name was on Kaori's scroll by a purple line that started a foot from where Kaori's began. My line widened at the point where I bailed her from jail. Then it widened more where Tsai, Kaori, and I had met. That was also the start of another line labeled Tsai, which began at another annotation which read NYC. Kaori's line then veered up on the scroll, away from my line, intersected, and then ended Jim and Elizabeth's lines. At that point, there was the date of the murder written down, along with many annotations. Then Kaori's line leveled and continued with its last annotation being a date and the words, arrested, jailed. I was looking at this when Thin asked, do I have things right about you? He did have things right. They were perfect. He had what I had told him, almost nothing. Does it look correct? Thin pressed again. I did not answer. I kept that silent right. But I asked Thin a question. I pointed to the scrolls on the walls and asked, Are, are all these crimes that you have solved? He moved his hand off of Kaori's scroll, and he picked up a pen and started flipping it between his fingers and over his knuckles, the way some people do with quarters. The detective nodded, yes. Then he asked, you grow up here? I did not answer. He leaned towards me and he said, well, I was born here. I went east for a while. I studied to be an architect. Bored. I came back. He looked at me, expecting his confession to elicit some dialogue. It did. I asked, you curious about Kaori because of her drawings? He nodded yes, and then said, that 
and that she's a murderer. He paused and then said, and because of you. I knew that he was pressing me to talk too much, but I still asked the detective another question. Why, why did you come back to Montana? You could have been, and this time I waved at his walls, a c- cop who draws lines anywhere. He smiled. He did not answer me. That was his right. Instead, he opened a drawer in his desk and brought out the notebook of Kaori's drawings that he had shown me the last time he and I had met. Then Thin said, This case is simple. We know who did the killing, but I want your opinion. He turned to a bookmark page and then reached across the desk and handed me the notebook. It was another sketch showing Kaori's and my trip to New York. It showed her and me on the rooftop of the New York Palace. Even though it had been drawn with a jail-issued felt tip, the sketch was detailed. The perspective was above us as if she had climbed on one of the radio masks and then drawn what she had seen while looking down. The sketch showed the street with traffic. It showed the machinery and cables on the roof. She drew the low, narrow ledge. All of it had been drawn accurately, but she had also drawn what had not happened. She had drawn herself naked and standing on the ledge, arms outreached, balanced like a high-wire walker. In the drawing, there was also a naked man sitting alone on the gravel. Me. It was a drawing of me, with a lot of kanji characters at the bottom of the page. I had the writing translated, Thin said. He took a sheet of paper out from a folder and read, Man takes me from jail and touches me. Man shows me place to jump. Man helps me kill my love. Together we do what I cannot do alone. Then the thin detective looked at me and asked, What does she mean? Between concrete and sky, my hands were under her shirt, her hands on my shoulders. Her mouth against mine, the hum of air compressors, the roar of traffic from 500 feet beneath us. That was where she had been. But then she had moved her right hand, her drawing hand, and drew the truth and shown that she had been alone. Her arms and legs had been wrapped around me, but her thoughts had walked along the ledge on the verge of a jump, on the edge of a fall. I had also been alone, sitting there on the gravel, watching as she had asked me to do, unable to help. I looked quietly at Thin and thought to myself, she meant I killed the importance 
of her boyfriend. I broke his touch. I made her be a nasty girl who had sex with a drunk stranger on a rooftop. I thought that to myself. But to Thin, I said, no, no idea what she meant. No, no idea at all. You do whatever you want, Thin said, don't you? I did not answer him. He said, you own that software company, the one in the Central Square building, right? I answered that question. I said, I'm an employee there. It's a public company that has a Missoula office. He said, you come and go, though, right? You do as you please, right? That's what I hear. That's what I see. That sounds like ownership to me. Either that or you're a prima donna. I didn't say anything, and he went on. I checked with your company. Slam, right? No one knows that you were in New York. I also checked with British Telglomerate. Then he rummaged in a file, and he found Tsai's card again and read from it. BTG, Tommy Tsai, Vice President of Broadband Networking. Then Thin said, No one knew he was in New York either. I checked. Someone told me that they thought he was in London at the time when Kaori says that she met him. The detective leaned over his desk, holding out his hand, and asked me for the notebook, which I then gave back to him. He then flipped through it and found the sketch that he had shown me during our earlier meeting, the sketch where Kaori had drawn Tsai, handing him the case filled with money, and which she had written underneath it in kanji, He Takes the Money. Kaori probably had guessed what it had held while we were in the cab driving towards the NBC building. She had glanced then at me while I had been taking that first envelope of money out of the briefcase. And then she probably noticed that I always had $100 bills after that. Know what I think? Thin asked. I think there's a connection between this Tommy Tsai, you, and her family back in Japan. I think you were part of something that did not go as it was supposed to. I know that she killed these kids. And then he tossed several glossy photographs onto his desk, crime photos of Jim and Elizabeth as they were found, which I did not look at nor touch. But I think you were supposed to be part of it, too, he said. I think you got the money from Tsai, and then you were supposed to do something for it. Maybe you were supposed to have it done for her. I suddenly felt the same as when Dave Cheat had found my back door hack and then had only thought it was an overrun bug. Finn was close, <laughs> But he was wrong. Not Japanese, I said. What? Thin asked. We chanced into each other in New York, that's all. But Tsai is a Chinese surname. From his accent, I guessed he grew up in Texas. You know, it's racist to think otherwise.
Thin waited for me to say more, but I was quiet again. I had already said too much. I've been checking on you, Thin said. Gaps in the work history. People you work with don't know much about you. I don't think you have friends. I do not think people like you. Again, I did not respond, and he continued. I think maybe you were only supposed to have messed with the kids' records. That's what you tech people do, right? Mess with files, get people in trouble, right? Were you supposed to mess with them, maybe break them up? She wrote, and he hits the notebook loudly with his fist, and he repeats from memory, Man helps me kill my love. He stared at me, and then he said, Were you the man, or was it Psy? Neither of us said anything. I could hear talking from the next door offices. I heard a mechanical clock ticking. Then Thin leaned back in his chair again and said, I also just don't like you. And I should have stayed quiet, but I said, But you like her, right? You like what you feel when you look at her drawings. You see her drawings and they touch you, right? Thin glared at me. I liked her, I said, and I liked her drawings. But I don't know why she killed her ex, and I don't know why she killed the other girl. I I wasn't part of any of it. Then Thin put Kaori's notebook back in his desk drawer, stood up, and pointed to his door, and he said, Get out of here. I'm not going to threaten you, because you already know that I have. I left the police station, but I did not want to be anywhere inside. So I drove up the Paddy Canyon Road behind Mount Sentinel. I parked at the Crazy Canyon Trailhead, and then I walked a few miles along an old fire road until I was above the polluted air. There were tall ponderosas on the open hill slopes. I stopped at one of them. I leaned against it, and I put an arm partially around the tree. The bark was broken in large, natural patterns. I looked up at the branches, and those spiraled around the trunk. A Fibonacci sequence, a growing spiral. As my sweat cooled on the back of my shirt, I began to get cold. In my coat pocket there were matches. I started a small fire. A raven glided past and landed in the nearby tree. Then he croaked loudly and was answered by another raven from across the canyon. I put more sticks on the fire. The thin detective had been right in that I did not have friends. What I had were people who needed what I could do for them but I had rocks and trees, and I had fire and ravens, and I had patterns. 
I kicked at the snow, and the crystals that were thrown into the sunlight sparkled. I did not see the infinite that school books use to describe snow, saying that each snowflake is unique. What I saw instead was repeating fractal sequences. The branches that were on the tree above me repeated. The patterns in the bark of its trunk repeated. The snow that I had kicked sparkled with repetition. Tsai had said, Go push some buttons or do whatever it is that you people do. Tsai did not want explanations, no matter how brief. He wanted results and he wanted money. The same as most people. His infectious greed just demanded much more. I saw my future in the patterns of my past, like a fractal cycle in the sparkle of memories that are never the same. I kicked at the snow again. I saw myself having friends and then losing friends. <laughs> and I saw my best friend, Helen, having sex with another man who I had thought had been my friend too. I was working with the, the vacuum and working at losing my stutter, working at being at peace with living with my one love. She was in college and I had a job. I told you this, but I still must remind myself often through telling you of where I was. She had a family, a father, a mother, and sisters who she called and talked with often about social events, about a cat and a dog, and about dorms and apartments, about jobs, about new cars that their friends were buying, about good, normal stuff. Evenings coming back to her house that we shared was the closest I ever came to normal. Sometimes there would be friends from her classes visiting. The windows in that north side Missoula house did not have curtains, and I would pause outside for a few moments and look in. Then I would open the door and come inside to where we lived. Those of us who have been homeless know how much this means, a place to go into where no one will ask you to leave. And then, if you are also welcomed, <laughs> you have a home. And it was a home with her, sometimes with friends. Those evenings, all of us drinking, laughing, talking, and me listening, listening to the talking about what was wanted, talking from people who mostly had never been without, but who always wanted more. Sometimes, when I was part of the conversation, my words did not have enough wanting to fit in, because there was nothing else I wanted, and I often did not know what to say. When I talked about engines and gears, about working on cars and machines, that was understood. But when I tried to talk about my mathematics, my patterns, all the lightness left, so mostly... I just tried to listen. When it was Helen and I alone, it was different. When it was just her and I. The stitches had come out of her hand and her wrist. I was tracing her thick scars with my fingertips. 
candlelight laying together on the bed. She tells me that she owes me her life. I say the same, and we are both right. There was a garden. These are the best tomatoes ever, Helen said, coming inside, holding the hem of her skirt so that it had become a basket. Come and try one. I go to where she is standing. I sit on the floor. I lean against her bare legs. She laughed. You are tickling me. She hands me a tomato and I bite into it like an apple and it is delicious. I lean my face against her thigh. She lets go of her skirt and the tomatoes bounce across the floor and she laughs. She lays down on the floor. She said, You always know exactly what I want you to do. So how come you can't talk with my friends? One of those friends, another art student, brought her flowers and bottles of expensive wine. He also left her drawings. One time, a drawing of a hornet crawling out of an open hand on the wall next to the front door. He had drawn it with a pen and written next to it, Love you, Stuart. When I asked Helen why Stuart would do this, she got angry at me and said, Don't insult me. It's you I love. That same evening that I had asked about the drawing by the door, Helen had asked me, What do you want to do with your life? This not having money thing is getting old. Instead of saying some easy lie like, Well, maybe I'll try to get into college and become an engineer. I told her the truth. I said, I have no idea. I'm here with you. That's enough amazement for now. Then, a few weeks later, I come home early with good news. I had gotten a new job, which meant more pay, because I kept fixing things. The place where I was working had promoted me from a janitor to their repairman. I had left work early with this news. It was mid-morning. The sun streamed through the windows, and I walked through the unlocked door. Stuart and her were in the middle of the floor. She was on top of him, facing me, and she and I looked at each other. I'm trapped with the details, but I won't share them with you. I stepped backwards. I closed the door. I got in my car, which I knew how to fix, and I left. It was death, except no one bled, no one died. Books left behind, clothing, candles, the garden, and the trinkets that money had bought, but which were not enough. Run away, run away, run away, run away. It's much more than a word. Then, two years later, after she was gone, I came back to Missoula. For a while, her ghost haunted me, especially near the places where we had been together. But when I avoided those spots, when I kept to the edges of the memories, they faded and I stayed. That night in Maloney's, that night we had found the bodies, Pascal had said to me, 
It's not right to sit near ghosts. I kicked the snow over the fire, and the smoke turned to sooty steam, and its cold dampness covered me. The fractals had stopped sparkling. The sun was setting, and a cold wind whistled in the darkening canyon. There was another half million in hundred-dollar bills in the back of the Subaru, money that I had not asked for and money which I did not want, money that I knew Tsai was using to show me the insignificance of every part of my life. But that bag of cash also told me that neither Tsai nor his partners had anyone else that they could make do what they needed. I walked out of Crazy Canyon and then drove away from town and I headed east. After an hour of driving, the interstate curved into the valley of tortured towns, Deer Lodge, Galen, Warm Springs. Signs on the interstate warned about the prison in Deer Lodge and said not to stop for hitchhikers. Then, at Galen, where the exit sign read, No Services, I got off of the interstate and drove south to the frontage road and passed a bar with 15-foot-tall letters on its roof, a sign big enough to be read from the interstate. The sign used to read, Dugout but the first three letters had blown down and were rusting in the weeds behind the bar, so the sign read, Gout. The no-services town of Galen had the alcohol treatment prison and one bar. People who worked in the prison drank in gout before driving back to their homes. I continued east through Warm Springs, then past the State Mental Institute, then up and out of the valley, and then down again into Butte. I headed up what used to be called the richest hill on earth, but now was a toxic cinder. I parked by the Dubliner, a 10-story brick hotel built 100 years ago, which had become half derelict since the mine shut down 40 years before. It was a place that rented rooms for cash by the week without asking for identification. I asked for a specific room number, and it was available. The room was on the topmost floor that was still in operation. The room had no phone and no television. The room did have a solid oak chair and an even more solid oak desk. On the desk, there was a lamp with a green shade. I turned the lamp on and turned off the overhead light. No traffic sounds. No sounds from people in the other rooms. I've been in this room before. Years ago. My first time in Butte. Before Helen. Before software. Before networks. Before Tsai. Before Kaori. I had been drifting driving up from Wyoming when I stopped in Butte for the night. It was early afternoon, and a gas station attendant pointed up to the doubler and told me that it was a cheap place to stay. After I had checked into the doubler, I went outside and walked on the streets 
named after slow dreams and fast poison. Gold, silver, mercury. When I passed the public library, I went in. In a collection of mining books were a few old math books. On that shelf, there was also a thin, new textbook. It was on that textbook's cover that I first read the word fractal. The math in that book did not have the complexity of differential equations nor calculus. Instead, it was a math of simple equations which fed their easy results back into themselves over and over again. I took a pencil and a sheet of folded paper from my coat pocket. I wrote down several of the book's examples. There were drawings in that book of a lake shoreline and explanations of how that shoreline could be measured in a way that made its length endless. The smaller the steps of measurement, the greater the final distance. This fractal math showed that the Greek paradox of Zeno had been foolish. Zeno had seen an arrow heading towards a target and said he could prove that the arrow would never hit. After leaving its bow, the arrow would come halfway to its target. Then it would continue and be a quarter of the way, then an eighth, then a sixteenth, then on and on. The ancient math showed that the arrow would forever be an endless, smaller and smaller fraction away from hitting. And thus, the math proved that it would never hit. But of course, that was wrong. Arrows pierced targets. Arrows changed the lines on the history charts. I also read equations from that library book that described another word I had never seen before. Recursion. Those fractal equations showed me a way to view the repetition of my stutter and my flip-flopping view of reading. For the first time, I saw math that described a world that I was part of. But I did not see that I was also about to start learning tools valuable enough to kill for. I stayed until the library's closing time. Then I brought the book to the librarian and told him that I did not have a card, but wanted to know if I could borrow the book for a few days. He asked where I lived. I told him that I worked all over and was driving through town, but I would stay in town while I studied what was in the book. The librarian nodded and said, Well, in Butte, a person is as good as their word. And he let me take the book the fractal geometry of nature, back to the Dubliner with my word that I would return it to him before I left town. I stayed in the Dubliner for three days and filled pages of paper with equations that recursively became the Julia and the Mandelbrot sets. I glimpsed at what could be predicted if the results of simple equations were fed back into themselves millions, billions, trillions of times. I had learned what a computer could be used for without ever having pounded a line of code. When I returned the fractal geometry of nature to the librarian, I stopped and looked at a framed black and white photo on the library's walls. 
It was an early aerial photo showing the richest hill cluttered with mining camps and mine shafts. In the photo, I noticed hundreds of light-colored mounds along the photo's edge. The mounds spiraled slightly, with a neatness and a pattern that nothing else in the photograph had. The librarian came up to me as I was looking at the photo, and he said, Place was a mess even before they dug the pit. I asked him about the organized mounds. Empty graves, he said. Refugees from wars and famine, the slaves of the Anaconda Company. These, and he softly touched the glass on the framed photo, are the empty graves of the Chinese who died by the thousand. Go up there now and you will see where the relatives came and dug up the bones to take back to San Francisco, Seattle, New York, to all the Chinatowns that connect with pain back to here. But first, next to the graves, they cleaned off every racist speck of Montana dirt with tweezers and bleach. They left the hatred up on that hill. And he tapped at the glass again. I looked at the librarian. I asked him if his relatives had worked in the mines in the photos. He looked at me, and then he nodded yes. Then he pointed on the photo to a sprawling mining camp where you could see tent tops, clotheslines, and rubbish heaps. He said, I'm part Chinese and I'm part Irish. Two sad histories met and my parents stayed. Then he said to me, Step outside while I smoke. I will show you something. I walked out with him. He sat down on the street curb and he lit a cigarette. Here, he said, and he nodded at the road surface. Look at this. I sat next to him and looked at the road. There was a pothole in the asphalt, which was exposing a buried layer of red brick cobblestones. The librarian said, These bricks came from the kilns that were in China. Then the cargo ships that brought the refugees over, ships meant to be filled with lumber or coal, those ships could not draft right with their soft human loads. Even packed with people, the ships were not heavy enough, so the owners stacked bricks down there with them. He kicked at the exposed cobblestones and he said, Imagine the misery. Then they sold the bricks to the Anaconda, and you can still find these cobblestones on the back railway streets from Seattle to here. Everywhere the Chinese worked, building the railways or tamping black powder into spark holes or digging for copper, everywhere they died. The librarian threw his half-smoked cigarette into the middle of the street and then stood up and walked back into the library saying to me before he went in, Ten years working here. No one ever noticed or asked about those graves. Come back and borrow books anytime you want. Now I had returned to the Dubliner and to the same room where I had first started learning fractals. 
I bought a bottle of Jamison from the bar near the lobby and then went up to the room. I sat by the window at the same desk. Outside were the lights of Butte, the place where copper for all the wires had come from. Edison and Westinghouse on the East Coast had figured out the physics and then the business of electricity, but the metal for their needs had to be dug from this hill, and the laborers who died by the thousands had come from across the world from wars and famine. And then their bones were dug out of the poisoned, racist dirt, scrubbed clean and taken away. And now the lucky bones were stored in heirloom boxes in top-story apartments and condos of the richest cities in the world. I drank from the bottle. I was drinking too much. But I kept drinking more until I was watching Butte's lights blinking off with the approaching morning. I was going to sleep for a few hours and then wake up. Then I was going to drive south, drive down I-15 towards desert and salt. I was going to run away again. Then I started thinking about Sai and his two grandfathers from China who came to Butte. I remembered the librarian who long ago tossed his cigarette into the middle of the street and told me about the bricks piled around the refugees. I turned on my burner and I called Tsai's burner. Secrets on secrets. I had no idea what time it was wherever he might have been. I didn't think he would answer, but he did. Where are you? Tsai asked. I said, you told me your grandfathers but both worked in Butte, in Montana. Then I asked, Did they also both die here in Butte? Sai said, You didn't do the job you were paid to do. I don't want your money, I said, and I added, And usually, when someone doesn't do a job, you, you fire them. You don't have a thug throw more money at them. This is bigger than you can imagine, Sai said. Do you have their bones, I asked. Did your parents go and dig them up? Or was it you? Is that our Montana connection you spoke of when you first stalked me? Are you getting some revenge against the wires in Montana by using me now? He ignored the questions and he said, Enzi, you sound drunk. Finish your job. The debt to my business partners grows. Answer me about your grandparents' bones, I said. And then Sai snapped. Do what you know how to do, or all the people you care about will end up in boxes like my grandparents' bones. I thought he was going to hang up on me then, but he didn't. He was waiting to hear me respond. I drank more whiskey, keeping the phone near my mouth so that Sai could hear me swallow. And then I said, I'm a friendless freak. There is no way for you to pressure me. Sai answered. He said, They will start with your business partner and then the one who answers your phones. 
They won't stop. Think hard about what is at stake for you. And then, finally, beating him to it, I hung up and I turned off the phone. I went out to the hallway bathroom and I was sick. And then I went back to the room and I passed out on the bed. When I woke up, it was getting dark. Again. I had stayed up for an entire night and then gotten so sickly drunk that I had managed to turn day and night upside down. I went outside and walked to the M&M. I sat at the bar near several men who looked like they had not known a steady job in 40 years but were still being worked to death. No one was saying anything to each other and I fit right in. After I ate, instead of heading south, I drove the two hours back to Missoula. You've just listened to Empty Graves, an episode from the novel The Ether and the Lie, being read here on Montana Voice. Music for this episode was composed and performed by me, Steve Saroff, and Mandela Van Eden. Mandela has a podcast called The Trail Less Traveled if you want to hear some nonfiction stories. They're quite great. If you want to hear the conclusion to The Ether and the Lie, Keep telling your friends about this podcast, about Montana Voice, or share a link to it on your social media pages. It's very much appreciated when that's done. And even though I don't see your names, I do see stats from where you're listening from. So here's a big thank you and a shout out to my listeners in Nampa, Idaho, Jupiter, Florida, Hobart, Tasmania, Chesapeake, Virginia, Silver Spring, Maryland, Gainesville, Florida, Salem, Oregon, Raleigh, North Carolina, Bozeman and Missoula, Montana, Montreal, Quebec, the Sea Ranch, California, Attleboro, Massachusetts, and about 200 other places. Thank you very, very much. <laughs>